Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with RFF Research Associate Maya Damaschek and Senior Research Analyst Nick Roy. Maya and Nick were part of a large team of authors that recently released an analysis published in the journal Science on the effects of the Inflation Reduction Act on the U.S. energy sector. The authors estimate how the policy might affect carbon dioxide emissions, the energy mix, and energy costs over the next 10 to 15 years. I'll also ask Maya and Nick about the uncertainties and limitations that are inherent to any modeling analysis. Whether you're an energy modeler or just energy model curious, I think you'll learn something from today's conversation. Stay with us. Nick and Maya, it's great to have you here on Resources Radio and be talking to you in person. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. And thanks for having us, Daniel. So Nick, you've been on the show before as part of our 70th anniversary series. Maya, you were on it very briefly in a kind of unusual episode that we did. So we haven't actually asked you to introduce yourself to the audience. So can you tell us about yourself and how you got interested in working on environmental issues? Of course. So I'm Maya Damaschek. I work as a research associate here at RFF. I work primarily on the Haiku Electricity model with Nick and Dallas, uh, and though I also do some work on the incidence of environmental policy across households. Great. What is Haiku is the name of the electricity model that we have at RFF. Does it stand for something or is it just like we like poems? Uh, it does not stand for something, but it is an homage to an old model the government used to run called POEMS which was a much larger and slower running electricity model. And the idea was that RFFs was faster and shorter. I see. It was like more elegant or something yeah. like a haiku. That's nice. But they could never find an acronym that had a K in it. Yeah. I'm working on it though. Kilowatt hour maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, uh, let's talk about the study that the two of you were a part of. Um, major new study. It was published in uh, the journal Science. And uh, we'll have a link to it, of course, in the show notes so people can check it out. Um, listeners of our show will probably have a good idea of the main provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, which we'll call the IRA, or maybe we'll call it IRA, or maybe we'll call it the Climate Bill, or maybe we'll call it something else. Um, so we don't need to give a lot of background on the provisions of the bill. So can you just tell us a little bit about this study that you were involved in? Who was involved? What did you try to do? And what about the methods of the study were interesting or notable? Yeah, so when the Inflation Reduction Act was released last year, a lot of teams came out, um, a lot of different research teams came out with modeling studies to represent what they believed the bill would do. And uh, what this study has achieved is really tried to see what commonalities we have amongst all these different studies, which usually with policy analysis, we don't really get that opportunity to compare such a broad set of studies. This particular paper has nine different teams involved, uh, four of which were releasing studies on the Inflation Reduction Act right after the bill came out. And we were one of those teams, as well as Repeat, Rhodium, and Energy Innovation, that were sort of trying to quantify what are the emissions impacts of the bill right after it came out. Um, and, you know, those studies are, are quick. The only reason we were able to do them were really because we were following the policy process so closely, uh, going back to when it was part of the Build Back Better Act and was framed in that context. And so... Uh, those studies have since then, we've revisited our analysis and all four of those teams that released those initial analyses uh, revised their studies and so did. Uh, then we also included five other groups from national labs, government agencies, universities, and this was all organized by John Beislein at the Electric Power Resource Institute or EPRI for short. And 
he really did this heroic effort of coordinating all our different teams with all our different assumptions and all our different data inputs and all our different modeling frameworks to see where you can get these common outputs and compare direct apples to apples across all these different models. Yeah, I would really say that what makes this study unique is the ability to look across so many studies and try to figure out what we can learn that is robust across studies and what things are maybe not robust across studies. Right. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a little bit similar to the Energy Modeling Forum, right, which has been run out of Stanford for a long time. And in some ways, it's similar to what we do with our global energy outlook at, uh, here at RFF. Um, different, of course, in, in lots of details, but a similar kind of concept. So um, we won't get too bogged down in the methods, although we, we certainly could. Um, let's just jump to the big picture findings. What are some of the headlines that come out of this work in terms of energy outcomes and emissions outcomes? So the big takeaway from the paper is that the IRA is likely to reduce U.S. emissions. And that's robust across all of the models. They all found that there would be a fall in emissions. I think the range that we state in the paper is something like 33 to 40% below 2005 levels by 2030, which is not quite to the U.S.'s Paris goals, uh, which are 50 to 52% by 2030, but it's on the way there and much better than in the absence of the IRA. I think the second main takeaway is also a little bit expected, which is that most of those emissions reductions are coming from the power sector. Uh, and we see pretty dramatic decreases in emissions in the power sector across the models, something around 47 to 83% below 2005 levels by 2030. Um, and then there are more detailed results looking across models, looking at how many renewables are built out, how much consumption increases, what happens to coal and gas capacity, et cetera. I think the last thing that's particularly interesting is the question of electrification, because some of the models were representing the entire U.S. energy sector, and they tried to look at what the uptake of the vehicle tax credits would mean for electrification or what the uptake of other tax credits would mean for building electrification. And so they created some projections of what consumption might be in future Whereas other models like ours uh, had consumption as something parametric that we just had as an input. Um, so there's a pretty wide range of consumption uh -huh. uh, projections as well. And then one quick follow-up. So when you say you had consumption as something that's parametric, for someone who hasn't worked on these types of models or these types of analysis, what does that mean? That means uh, we made an assumption about what consumption was going to be, and we just put it in the model and we didn't touch it after that. Beautiful. Well, I should add that... We did get that assumption from uh, the Energy Information Administration's annual energy outlook, so we weren't making it up completely, <laughs> um, we just, but we were getting it from you know some a modeling team that had projected the demand for electricity in the U.S. Uh, back in 2021 was the number we used. That's great. Those are the key outcomes for the energy system and for carbon dioxide emissions. Um, but how about costs? That's a key talking point that many people care about a lot, right? What happens to energy costs under the IRA? And also, when we think about those costs and compare them to the benefits that the bill gives us, how do those stack up? So what do the costs look like? And, and what does the cost benefit ratio look like? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different ways we can think about costs. You described one that we do in the paper, which is you look at the total energy system, and we sum up all the costs uh, from the modeling exercise and see what those costs look like prior to the bill and after the implementation of the bill and these models. And something that you do when you have something like the Inflation Reduction Act that is mostly subsidies driving the decarbonization uh, is you subtract out those subsidies from 
the costs on the grid. And that's a big reason why we see a reduction in costs uh, for for retail prices, for example. Now, the prices of electricity are different than that of, you know, how much money is being spent by the government. If you look from the government, the government's spending money on from just these climate provisions, and it's raising money from somewhere else. Uh, but like I said, we're concerned about this cost on the energy system. And so when we want to compare those costs on the energy system to the benefits from reducing these emissions, we have to find some similar metric or comparable metric. And what we do here at RFF and as well as environmental economics more generally and in cost benefit analysis in the government is you consider what's called the social cost of carbon, which I know we have plenty of podcasts talking about. Uh, and so I won't go too much in depth on how they're calculated. But currently, the most up to date research says that the social cost of carbon is somewhere near $185 per ton of CO2 added to the atmosphere. And so the idea is, is that if you have another ton of CO2 emissions added to the atmosphere that it would cost society as a whole around $185. And so if your costs per CO2 removed from the atmosphere or not emitted from the atmosphere due to this bill are on average lower than that value, then you could say that the benefits outweigh the costs. And what we find in this study is when we're putting the costs in terms of dollars per CO2 abated or not put into the atmosphere, uh, we find a net metric of 27 to $102 per ton as the range across the studies. And that 27 to $102 is a lot lower than the 185. And so we would say that the benefits, the climate benefits of this bill far outweigh the costs on the energy system. You could look at older social costs of carbon, such as the Obama administration, and you'd find that landing within the range of our costs where they're just about the same as the benefits. Um, and if you want to go back to the Trump administration and look at their $7 per ton, you would see that the climate benefits are not worth the costs of this bill. Um, but yes, in conclusion, across all these modeling studies, we do see that the benefits far outweigh the costs uh, from implementing this bill. That makes a lot of sense. And just to clarify for people, we're not going to go into the details on the social cost of carbon, but there are lots of parts of uh, the economy that we can reasonably expect will be damaged by climate change that actually are not accounted for in the current best estimates of the social cost of carbon. So uh, we're also not talking about the social costs of other greenhouse gases associated with the energy system like methane and, and nitrous oxides and things like that. Yeah. And we're not including the other benefits of the bill, like the health benefits that we might expect from reduced fossil fuel usage. Right. And, and Maya's being humble by not mentioning the paper that we wrote uh, that does try to get at that. Um, and we released that last October uh, to measure the health benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, we'll definitely have a, a link to that as well in the show notes so people can can dig in and admire more of your of your excellent work. So, Nick, you've talked about system-wide costs, but when um, – normal people think about government policy related to energy, their first question is going to be, how is it going to affect my energy costs? Is it going to do anything to gasoline prices? I know you all didn't look at the sort of uh, fuels sector in your modeling analysis, but people will wonder that. They'll also wonder, you know, what will it do to my electricity bill? Uh, is my electricity bill going to double or something like that because of these policies? Uh, what are some of the results that you and your uh, co-authors found? So, Daniel, that's a great question. Uh, the paper does not talk very much about electricity price impacts, but almost all of the individual studies that contributed to the paper did look at price impacts, and so did we. So in the paper that we published in October preceding this paper, uh, we found that the Inflation Reduction Act 
is likely to decrease the price of electricity generation relative to what it would have been in the absence of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, And it's also likely to decrease the volatility of the price of electricity because the electricity sector as a whole is relying more on renewables and less on fossil fuels, and fossil fuels have notoriously volatile prices. So, for example, last year when the price of gas really went up due to the war in Ukraine, electricity prices all over the world also went up. But a grid that was more reliant on renewables would see less of that kind of impact. So so we found this decrease in volatility and decrease in electricity generation prices. Um, and that's all happening because the government is subsidizing electricity effectively and moving us to an overall, in the long term, cheaper and cleaner grid. Uh, now. Whether that means uh, cheaper or more expensive household bills is kind of a separate question, because first of all, electricity generation price is not the same as electricity price that households are paying, because there are transmission and distribution costs. And second of all, your bill is also about how much electricity you're consuming. And in fact, one of the things the IRA is trying to achieve is getting people to consume more electricity because we're trying to electrify the whole economy. And reducing the price of electricity makes it easier for people to consume more units of electricity. Um, So, you know, what this means for your bill, I don't know. That remains to be seen. But we do know that it is likely to decrease the price of electricity generation relative to what it would have been in the absence of the policy. That makes sense. And electricity prices, I'm not an electricity expert, so correct me if I'm wrong, but electricity prices are set by the the marginal cost of electricity generation in whatever kind of region you're in. Do you think that marginal cost is more likely to be set by renewables in the future, or is the marginal cost still going to be set by gas? Because I'm imagining renewables, because they're zero fuel costs, right? They're going to generate whatever they can generate. And, and supplying energy at that margin can you just talk a little bit more about how the IRA might affect the, the marginal price of electricity generation? Yeah, so you're absolutely right that electricity prices, especially in whole, in regions of the country with a deregulated electricity sector, uh, is set by the marginal unit that's generating. Um, but the price on average that you're paying over the course of the year is reflecting the marginal price in a bunch of different hours. So the more hours that are shifted away from having gas as the marginal unit, the cheaper your overall average annual price is going to be. And the less gas and other fossil fuel we're using in the grid overall, you know, one would hope that that lower demand for those goods also means those prices are lower. So the marginal gas unit is also not as expensive. Yeah. And something that I really liked that you pointed out there was sort of the temporal aspect of the cost of generation. So something that economists, especially energy economists, have really been interested in, um, especially those at Berkeley's Energy Institute, is the idea of dynamic pricing. And uh, it, it because the Inflation Reduction Act subsidizes those renewable uh, generating units, that means that if you're going to implement something like dynamic pricing in the future, where people can basically get different prices at different hours, there's already some aspects of that being implemented in some utilities, that you'd actually be able to uh, get an even cheaper price during certain hours than you would if you're averaging out the price across all hours. So it does also enable more benefits to the climate and more benefits to people's electricity bills if something like that is implemented and you know leads to a more efficient system. I also want to return to this original question about what is the impact on household electricity bills, because 
Again, in our earlier study last October, we looked a little bit at the distributional impact of reducing electricity prices, and we find that reducing electricity prices by subsidizing it uh, with government funds is effectively a progressive in the technical sense policy because you're reducing the amount that households are having to spend on a you know crucial good and you're paying for it with the tax system which is somewhat more progressive than uh, you know the flat quantity of electricity most households are consuming right Some and that's is, an right. important aspect and a, an important goal of the inflation reduction act to for keep sure. costs down for households for sure Let's talk a little bit now about modeling uh, because you and your colleagues in this analysis carry out really excellent modeling work, top of the line modeling work, sort of best in class. But uh, models are limited inherently. They are limited representations of the real world. And so you have to leave some stuff out. Can you talk a little bit about the things that you have to leave out from this type of modeling exercise? What are some of the most important things you have to leave out or you just – you can't model for, for one reason or another. And, and how do you think they might affect the outcomes uh, that, Maya, you described uh, just a few minutes ago? Yeah, I really appreciate you talking about our models as best in class, but <laughs> also talking about the limitations of modeling, uh, because I think every modeler would say that they're some of the last people to trust the results of models as something that you can guarantee. Uh, yesterday at the hydrogen event we had at RFF, there was, uh, I forget which panelist mentioned it, but they said the cliche that all models are wrong, some are useful. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. What exactly are these models useful for? But to get at that question about what aren't they useful for first, uh, I think there's a lot of things that in this paper we describe, but as well as in the broader discussion on the Inflation Reduction Act, people have described that models aren't capturing. So these models represent a version of the world that is under textbook market conditions and is heavily reduced down and simplified. So we can analyze these policies in a quick and but also interesting and uh, in-depth analytical manner. And because of that, there's certain things that don't fit in that kind of framework and approach that we haven't been able to implement directly. So some of these things you'll hear about in the news right now are the in interconnection delays for renewables. Uh, the Some of the electricity markets have issues with getting their uh, renewables online after they they can get the project plan, they can get the, the capital associated with that project ready to go, but it's difficult to actually get it set up and ready to connect to the grid. And in a similar vein, you see the same thing with transmission. So there's all this money flowing to build renewables and it's it's ready to be done, but actually implementing that is difficult from an interconnection and transmission perspective. And th there's all sorts of institutions that need to be uh, made a little bit more efficient to be able to handle this level of build out. And so that's one thing that we just simply don't do in our models because it's an institutional question, not a economic or inherently economic analytical question. There's other things that people I think are a lot more familiar with that could get in the way of Inflation Reduction Act reaching the emissions targets we saw in this analysis. And so that would be something like supply chain backlogs or critical mineral shortages. I mean, during the COVID pandemic, a lot of people saw prices going up because of the supply chain uh, issues. And that's probably a big part of the reason this bill was labeled as the Inflation Reduction Act and not the Emissions Reduction Act. Uh, so th those are some resource constraints that get in the way of that process. And there's also a, a aspect of human behavioral things that just economic models have n never really quite tried to implement. Uh, so labor shortages are already being talked about as big frictions to the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act. 
and as well as siting and permitting, which is really the big one that's been discussed federally as well as at the state level, uh, which can sometimes just come from local opposition. Sometimes people don't want wind turbines in their backyard. And these models don't model every backyard and don't model every potential wind turbine. We just say where the costs make it possible to build these and make it more cost effective to build them. So these are sort of things that we're not including. And I mentioned the event yesterday about hydrogen, which was centered around this idea of treasury releasing guidance of exactly how these tax credits get understood to be in the law and how the IRS makes them available. Um, yeah. So that event yesterday uh, on the hydrogen tax credits was really getting at how these tax credits can be made available and the rules that treasury decides to make them available by. And during that event, they talked about a range of very small amounts of electricity demand increases. So you could generate a little bit of hydrogen, or you could have rules that allow for a lot of hydrogen production that could actually lead to a lot more electricity demand, which would actually undo a lot of the emissions reductions that could be in the Inflation Reduction Act, because you could increase demand more than you could increase renewable generation. And so, I mean, how Treasury ends up deciding all these rules, you yourself talked about energy communities and how that was an important rule that took some time to be able to parse out and the electric vehicles was also an important rule that treasury had to figure out how that gets done is also a big uncertainty that these models are not trying to capture so there's a lot of things that get in the way of implementation frictions as well as just some uncertainties that these models can't actually represent that's great and when you think about the sort of directional influence of those uncertainties, when I think about them, I usually maybe it's just because I'm a pessimist. Like I think about the 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 downside risks from these uncertainties, right? Local opposition, problems with interconnection queues, problems with labor supply, problems with materials. Am I? Do you think I'm right to be like thinking that most of these unmodeled aspects would tend to? limit the benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act? Or are there plenty of uncertainties that could go in the other direction? There, there's definitely some that go in the other direction. Uh, I was tempted to bring an old output sheet from modeling we had back in 2008, because I was thinking about this where we saw like, like the modeling of in 2008 that was done from the same team uh, that we're on now projected that emissions would be a lot higher today than they are and that electricity demand would be a whole thousand terawatt hours greater in the US. And um, so, and you know, I don't actually know what work they were doing. It was just a random spreadsheet I found, but I thought it was really interesting that they also underpredicted how much solar and wind would get deployed because of the capital costs were so high back then for those technologies. And they really reduced down in the past decade. And that kind of thing can happen for a lot of advanced technologies that are developing right now. But those are the kind of thing that modelers don't like to make bets on. You don't, you don't want to make a bet on an optimistic outcome uh, when it comes to costs. But you're definitely right that all those frictions and constraints that I was talking about before do go in the negative direction in terms of lead to potentially higher costs or potentially higher emissions. And uh, that's something that modelers do sometimes try to proxy. One way we do it is we uh, build a constraint around how much capacity can grow in a given year. And sometimes we'll run a version of the model that says, you know, if your capacity went up, is going to go up four times today's value in 2030, it better have gone up at least two times the year before. So you're not seeing random spikes in the build out of electricity generation, but rather uh, a, a path that has to build up to it to actually some kind of capture some heuristic of uh, like incremental institutional capacity being built out. Not to make a plug for our future work, but the <laughs> same team that wrote this paper also looked a little bit at sensitivities you could run around each group's 
central case, and those sensitivities often involved changing how fast the models think it's possible to build that renewable. So we are proxying some of these things. I guess I would also add that I think it's kind of useful to pay attention to the downside risks because that's you do more things in advance if you're preparing for downside risks than if you're just waiting for something great to happen. Totally. Yeah, if we don't know what the downside risks are, then we can't try to deal with them before they happen, right? And prevent those bad things from from happening. So the next question I want to ask is is related to this question of, you know, model outcomes and model uncertainty. And it's kind of like a big picture question. Um, you know, when studies like these get released, the headline finding, the one that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, is the thing that ends up as the headline, right? And the minutiae about, you know, citing uh, delays and interconnection cues and other downside risks, they are minutiae, right? They're sort of maybe buried in the newspaper article if they're there at all. And so when you think about communicating results from, from modeling studies like this, what do you think is the right balance of communicating that top line and communicating the uncertainties that are there? And, you know, as researchers, I, I know, you know you're transparent, you're getting all the information out there, but you also have to kind of think about how to talk about it in the world, right? We do press releases at RFF and, uh, and, and newspaper reporters talk to us. So how do you think about that mix of, of top line versus um, – uh, uncertainties and assumptions? Well, I think you have to communicate both. And oftentimes the uncertainties and assumptions are part of the top line in a really important way, because modeling is really about clarifying our thinking on any subject and making sure that we that we understand what we know and what we don't know. So it's useful in a study like this to say top line takeaway, emissions go down. Second top line takeaway, we don't really know how much they're going to go down. And here's why we don't really know how much they're going to go down, because the models disagree about some inputs and because there are some things we can't model. And I think that's the most useful thing the public can take away. Yeah, I mean, something I'd also like to point out is that uh, we have a comms team at RFF that does a lot of this thinking about what's the important way to communicate this work. And uh, this podcast is part of that, uh, which that's also nice because it liberates the researchers from a lot of those decisions. But my own personal, I guess, philosophy or belief in one way we could use these uh, top line findings as well as the sort of minutia that should be top line findings in a uh, unique way or a balanced way, I guess, is to think about these results as benchmarks. So we output three different years in this study, or we show three different years of outputs in the study, 2025, 2030, and 2035. And we have a range of different models that have different structures and representations of the world. And if, for example, by 2025, real world emissions are a lot higher or real world costs are a lot higher than any of these models predicted, then maybe it's time for decision makers to say, well, why are we failing to achieve what these models have uh, predicted we're capable of achieving? And so if you're a grid operator, maybe you have to spend a lot more time looking at your interconnection queues. If you're a renewable developer, maybe you need to start to strategize better about your community outreach so you can overcome some of these siting issues. And if you're a government agency or a government official, maybe thinking more seriously about permitting in 2025 when you see you're missing this benchmark is an important thing to do. Uh, and similarly, you know, you're looking farther out 2030, 2035, you, and you see that you're missing these benchmarks or you know, if you're lucky, you're exceeding them. But what policies do you have to put in place to complement this set of policy instruments and these incentives that exist to unlock the full capabilities of this policy? And 
One thing that I think is really important about thinking about it in this benchmark framework is this idea of regulatory capture, which exists in the field of economics. Uh, you don't want to design a bunch of subsidies that are simply captured by industry and they just make profits off it and they don't actually reduce the cost as the policy was intended to do. And you don't want all these inefficiencies in the market to be gamified uh, for a bill that was labeled the Inflation Reduction Act and aiming to reduce prices and not increase profits. So... Uh, that kind of accountability, I think, can only really be achieved when you have these sort of independent uh, research teams putting out work that they have to be accountable to, but they're not accountable to these corporations, which might have different projections about the implementation of the IRA. Right. Yeah, it's going to be so fascinating to watch how that plays out over the next several years. And I know that there's a lot of concerns about you know how much of these subsidies will get passed on to consumers versus how much will you know go to investors. Um, and We'll just have to wait to see how that plays out. Either way, hopefully we'll we'll have lots of emissions reductions and we're all being too pessimistic about this, but, <laughs> but time will tell. So last question, um, Maya and Nick, before we go to our top of the stack segment is um, about variation across results. Maya, you mentioned this just a minute ago. There are multiple models running here, looking at multiple sectors of the economy. But even if you look at, you know, within a sector like the electricity sector, there's quite a bit of variation between some of the models and what they find. So can you just talk a little bit about that? What, you know, what's going on there? Uh, what are some of the assumptions under the hood that might lead one model to, to have a very different result from another model, even with a very similar set of input assumptions? Yeah. So I, I think Maya might talk more about the variation in input assumptions between these models, but something that's really important about a multi-model study like this is that there's just different structures for how we think about these models. So something that's an economy-wide model or trying to represent the macro economy and not one particular sector or some subset of sectors might be framed as a continuous general equilibrium model. And we have a fellow here at RFF, Mark Hafstead, who runs a model like that. And those use a lot of economic theory and concepts such as elasticities uh, that are really crucial to those solutions that those models will put out. Uh, one issue with those kinds of models is they're really bad at capturing fully zero emissions from a sector because when just with by the nature of how elasticities work. Uh, the model we run is falls under the label of a partial equilibrium model, which is more of looking at one particular sector and the equilibrium, the market equilibrium that that sector can achieve. And you'll see other models in this study that have several partial equilibrium models of several sectors and link these. And that might be a linked partial equilibrium model. Sometimes an integrated assessment model sort of falls under that kind of framework, though that can be more interdisciplinary. So these different frameworks can lead to different outcomes. And, ha and you can really see it in the study too. If you look at the supplementary materials, we categorize the models in this way. And when you look at their emissions pathways, the partial equilibrium models have a very similar pathway to each other. Uh, and the continuous general equilibrium models or other kinds of models in the study might have a different one. Uh, some ways that these models can differ within each other is this concept of perfect foresight, which is do you represent your model in a way that, you know, it solves for one particular year, takes that year, goes on to the next year, solves that year? Or do you consider all the years as one big long plan decision and figure out a way how to optimize your costs across a longer time horizon. And that concept is called perfect foresight. We use it in our model, but it's not used in every model. And so these different structural assumptions about how decisions are made can really lead to different outcomes in emissions and costs. In fact, when we've looked at sensitivities across the models, I think we found that Basically, the models differ from one another more than any given model does across sensitivities. 
uh, you know, maybe we just need wider sensitivity ranges, but model structure really matters to the type of output you're going to get. And I think the biggest structural difference is the uh, one-sector versus multi-sector models, because any model that was representing multiple sectors and trying to represent electrification was going to have a vastly different impact in the electricity sector, vastly different build-out of renewables than a model that doesn't really consider electrification. On the input assumptions topic, I think the models were reasonably well aligned on their capital cost and natural gas assumptions, uh, but they, you know, they did differ. Um, and then I think the places where they really differed the most was around the implementation of carbon capture and storage, and again, on demand. And carbon capture and storage in particular uh, was one that felt very assumption-driven across models because we don't know uh, how easy it will be to site carbon capture facilities. We don't really, we don't know how easy it will be to build out a pipeline network for that or how rapidly it will be possible to start storing uh, CO2. So a lot of the models had to just pick a, a level that they thought wasn't too much and just put that in. Uh, so I think that there's going to be a lot of work on that going forward. Yeah, and similar to CCS, we have hydrogen, as I was mentioning uh, in the event yesterday. Uh, some models have a representation of hydrogen and how that's going to affect demand, and others, like ours, don't represent hydrogen and how it interacts with the electricity sector. And on that topic of demand, there's all sorts of other tax credits, such as residential rooftop solar or uh, the EV tax credits, which if you represent those, you're going to see increases in electricity demand. And if you don't represent those, you're not going to see it. And so that can really drive a lot of the differences in emissions and costs because you're talking about a meaningfully different grid than uh, you would be without those assumptions built in. Right. And then let's not, not even talk about all the incentives for energy efficiency, which is going to maybe change things going in the other direction. Um, as folks can tell, there's a there's a ton to talk about here. There's a ton to unpack. So I hope uh, our listeners will check out the study and check out all of the supplementary materials, which I'm sure you're all aching to read, um, to, to get uh, into the weeds here with us. Um, but let's close it out, Maya and Nick, with the last question that we asked all of our guests uh, to recommend something to our audience that you've read or watched or heard that you think is great. So Maya, first, what's at the top of your stack? Um well, I've been reading this book, After the Flood, Imagining the Global Environment in Early Modern Europe by Lydia Barnett. It's a history of the way that Enlightenment European philosophers thought about Noah's flood and how that allowed them to conceptualize the world. And I think it's an interesting book to read in the context of people who work on climate change because it's all about trying to understand how people in the past, in Europe specifically, thought about whether and how much and in what way they could affect the world around them and what it would mean to change the world around them. Yeah, and for me, I I was actually looking for something to to say this weekend uh, for this question. And uh, I was lucky that I came across a podcast called The Field Trip Podcast um, by Washington Post journalist Lillian Cunningham. She has a, she basically got to do what a lot of people at RFF probably would is is their dream in a lot of ways, which is get the Washington Post to fund your trip across the U.S. national park system. And she went to five really amazing national parks. And this audio is it captures all the sounds of nature and all her meditations in it while she's there. Uh, and I guess the reason that this podcast is good and why she could justify asking that, that uh, for that kind of sponsorship is 
the fact that she goes really in depth on the history of these national parks and all the sort of contentious issues that have come up with that. Uh, she's pretty much every episode she talks to the native tribe that was uh, located in that area before it was turned into a national park and talks about the history of how the national park system interacted with those groups, uh, as well as, you know, how some of them were better at preserving that area than the national park system. The fires in Yosemite was a really interesting uh, episode that they started with where they talk about how the native people were better about letting the underbrush burn and preventing a lot of things from building up to allow for more fires. So I, one thing I really liked about that podcast was just this idea that you, when trying to achieve a goal as well-intentioned as it can be, it's really important to think about sort of the individuals who are going to be affected directly by it and to take those considerations in as you build your governance structures. And and uh, we spent a lot of time talking about federal climate policy on this podcast, but a lot of the way this is going to get done is through that local governance and state government issues like that. Yeah, So true. So true. Well, we'll be talking about I think those local governance issues in the years to come, and we'll be talking about the modeling exercise that tries to account for the big picture. I think we got to think about both of them, right? And, and try to keep both of them in our heads at the same time. So um, Maya and Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. Congratulations on the study. And um, thanks again. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.